This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Hello, hello, hello. Ah, there we go. Okay, so Darmendra Kalani, Director of Insights, moderator for this Brussels official launch of the World Energy Outlook. It's our annual fair. Those of you who've been, you know what to expect, and those of you not, you'll wait and see. We have um, an excellent set of contributors. Um, obviously, we will be kicking off with uh, Fatih Birol, who does not require an introduction, is a well-known character internationally and is always a feature and a good friend of the house and always here every year to launch the, uh, the World Energy Outlook. <clears throat> and this year, like previous years, um, is full of uh, drama, insight and problems to a certain extent, but I'll let Fatih explain that. But it does come at a really interesting time. It comes at a time between we've had the IPCC report, we have the launch of the Commission's approach tomorrow, um, and then we have Katowice uh, later in the year. So this report is quite significant in the context of everything else that's going on. It's, it's bookended by the IPCC report and Katowice uh, later uh, in the year. I want to, before I do invite uh, uh, Fatih Birol onto the stage, is to bring in the voice of citizens. We have a debating platform, um, four million citizens across Europe engage in matters of the day or policy matters that relate to them. We ask them a number of issues that relate to their lives, but also key policy issues across Europe. And so I think if it will work, there we go. This is Sean who says GDP growth, recovery from de debt, falling unemployment, rising incomes would be supported by, ch by cheaper energy or productivity enhancing good commercial return investments. So, interesting point of view. Uh, the next biggest wave of energy independence is the energy union. Household batteries and distributed renewable energy production. So, another view from Zorro. Interesting. Um, and Brefni says, how can we use cheap fossil fuels over the coming years? Uh, we'll, uh, how we use them will be important if we are to kickstart the next energy revolution, as will the development of the European electric electricity smart grid, etc., across the union. So, interesting viewpoints from citizens that frame this conversation in a number of ways, actually. And you can see there's a kind of spectrum of views about uh, both energy, uh, climate change, and the pace at which we're moving and what we need to do. Um, as ever, um, as ever, um, this debate and any debate on energy transition or climate change, I think is framed by three things. And they are supply, demand and politics. And how we triangulate those three things matters the most. I think it's quite interesting. It, it's, a it's a reflection of the dynamism of the market that today the price of oil has gone down to 60 uh, uh, rather than previously, you know, 70, etc., 80. So even since the report has been published, it's gone down to 60, and demonstrating actually the, not only the unpredictability, but also shifting sands around um, um, energy transition and how economics can drive this quite significantly in the kind of equation of supply, demand, and politics. On that note, let me invite Fatih to the platform. A very warm welcome to you, and we look... Uh, Mr. Vice President, Excellencies, dear colleagues, dear friends, a very good morning to all of you. It is always a pleasure to come to uh, Brussels 
and to share uh, with the colleagues uh, here and other occasions the, uh, the findings of our uh, work, the World Energy Outlook. But uh, before I go to remarks about the, uh, the Energy World and IES uh, work here, let me thank uh, Mr. Vice President for his presence, first of all, his support for the IEA, but more importantly, the great work he has done uh, in Brussels. Uh, and key word here is, of course, the, the Energy Union, a major project which aims to improve the, uh, both gas and electricity security of the uh, EU members, but at the same time, his ways, roads, instruments to deal with our uh, climate challenge. It's a major project, and I can tell you that it's an EU project, but it can well be, it should well be a source of inspiration for the countries, other countries uh, around the world. So thank you very much, uh, Mr. Vice President, for your leadership here. Now, uh, we are going to talk to you about the uh, World Energy Outlook, and I am very fortunate to have uh, two colleagues of uh, mine uh, with me today. Mrs. Laura Cozzi, who is the, one of the co-leads of the World Energy Outlook, who has been recently uh, promoted being the IES Chief Energy uh, Modeler. You know Lara since a long time uh, with the uh, IEA. And a new colleague who recently joined the IEA, whom you know, not from the IEA, is uh, Mettit uh, Verstrafer. Mettit has been transferred from Brussels to Paris, and I can tell you that she is very happy. At, 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 least, at least it is what she told me. And Mr. Vice President is not surprised. So, Mr. Vice President, our doors are also open for you in Paris. Next year, Next year with great pleasure. Now, uh, dear colleagues, uh, we wanted to share with you a few things about the global energy and climate issues, globally also on, 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 on Europe. But before that, being on the, on the selfish side, I wanted to highlight to you one very important development for the IEA and maybe for the international energy governance. Some three years ago, we said at the IEA, with our new leadership at the IEA, we said we are opening the doors of the IEA to emerging world. Because until 2015, we were known as the rich men's energy club that we wanted to change. We are open our doors to emerging world to get new countries, new members to the IEA family. And as a result of that, uh, we have the share of the IEA family in the year 2015 was about 40%. Uh, and as of today, it reached uh, over 70%. What we have done, we had Mexico as the member of the IEA, a very important country, but also some other key countries, I will talk a lot in a minute, became the part of the IEA family, those governments. China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, 
and very recently, two weeks ago, South Africa. These are all major countries and the energy decisions, climate change decisions that will be made in those countries will affect all of us. So therefore, we made this, uh, the, the IEA move with the help of the, of course, European Commission new strategy and we think it will have major implications for the global energy markets. Now from here, let me tell you a few things before the future where we are today. Now, first of all, uh, the oil, oil markets, starting with the oil markets, as uh, our chairman mentioned, the prices in three weeks of time came from $85 when we said we are entering a red zone for the global economy down to uh, about $60. And we think this volatility is only the start of the game. We are entering an unprecedented period of uncertainty and volatility in the oil markets. Natural gas, many experts were thinking we have a glut of gas, so much glass, uh, supply of gas, but now, mainly as a result of China emerging as a giant gas consumer, we are seeing that that glut is over now, and uh, what we have seen, the China effect in the oil markets 10 years ago, we are seeing the same as IE has anticipated in the gas markets. Solar PV grows very, very strongly across the world. And when you look at the world energy outlook carefully, you will see that the, the growth of, we have an exponential growth expectation of solar as a result of a lower uh, uh, costs and government support. But other key technologies don't grow at the same uh, pace. Now, one, in my view, an important point that I will carry out throughout the presentation and throughout this discussion. And we have been saying that. Now, ladies and, and this, it is important, ladies and gentlemen, what we say that the IPCC report comes, very strong decline and decline of emissions today, peak and decline. Paris target says the same, the same things. But those targets, those speeches, those reports, and energy markets, when you look at it there, what's happening, there is a big disconnect. There is a disconnect, and not to see this disconnect is extremely dangerous. 2018 emissions, we expect, will see a historical high. At the IEA, we are very privileged. We are the only body in the world. We have all the energy data at our fingertips. And when I look at the data of the first 10 months of this year, we see that the global CO2 emissions will increase again and reach a historical high. Therefore, I am saying, be very careful. 
The reports are there, targets are there, speeches are there, the tweets are there, but the numbers, real numbers, what is happening in the energy world is going completely the opposite direction. This is important uh, to note, and it's IEA's job to bring it to the, uh, to the attention of decision makers. One good news, the, some of you who follow our work since a uh, long time know very well, since the year 2000, every year we measure how many people have no access to electricity in the world because we think we should have a global responsibility rather than focusing on our own narrow area. It was a problem in China, India, and Africa. And in the year 2000, there were 1.7 billion people who didn't have electricity. 2010, it went down to 1.4 billion, and our numbers now show, for the first time, number of people who don't have access to electricity fell below 1 billion people. This is mainly as a result of a huge success story in India. Prime Minister Modi and his government took the electricity access issue as a serious issue with the help and support of the International Energy Agency. And we are seeing today that the problem remains basically a Sub-Saharan Africa problem. In Sub-Saharan Africa today, ladies and gentlemen, two out of three people have no access to electricity. And this is a major uh, issue. And we think this is a key issue, and you will see in the next few minutes, this is one of the very few good news I have to share with you. World Energy Outlook every year focuses on one fuel. We look at all the fuels every year, but we focus on one fuel. And this year, we have chosen electricity. Why? For two reasons, at least. Number one, I will show you in a minute, global energy demand is growing strongly, but global electricity demand grows two times faster than the energy demand. Very strong electricity demand growth. This is the first reason. Second reason is that the renewable energies, solar PV and wind are growing very strongly. And the very nature of those renewables and their growing share is a challenge for the electricity industry, how to accommodate them in our grids, in our power systems. This, together with the digitalization of our economies, we believe the energy industry, which is about 100 years old now, is going through an unprecedented transformation, and we thought we should shed light to this very important transformation for governments, for uh, regulators, for industry, utilities, uh, for uh, TCOs, and uh, for, uh, for, for everybody. It is the reason we focus on electricity this uh, year and look at these uh, issues. 
Now, where do we go from here? The future, we don't know what the future holds. We, have, we are going to tell you a couple of important trends, which is important for energy, climate, geopolitics, foreign policy, defense policy, we believe. But we, are, we, are, uh, we don't own the truth. We don't know where the future uh, lies. Therefore, we have two different frameworks or scenarios, which we call the first one is the new policy scenario, the, the destination of travel is in line with what we have today with the current uh, policies and the planned policies, and with the NDCs that the governments have already decided, where does it bring to? And the other one is a sustainable development scenario, uh, we call it, which looks at what we need to do in the energy sector to reach three very important targets. Number one, to reach our climate goals, Paris. Number two, universal access to electricity, everybody, what needs to be done there. Number three, reducing the air pollution to acceptable levels in the emerging world. This is a very important issue, ladies and gentlemen. All these three, to achieve that, what do we have to do in the energy sector is a question we uh, put ourselves for the sustainable development scenario. Now, let me first focus on the, with the current policies, existing policies where we are heading, and I will tell you uh, about that, and in the context of, first of all, changing the global uh, geography of uh, energy. Now, what is the share of different countries in the, in the world? Now, what is happening uh, uh, today uh, is the uh, following, first, in terms of European Union, with all respect to all the European uh, Union countries, in the year 2000, European Union was the second largest consumer of the world after the United States. And China was behind them. But today, China is by far the largest energy consumer of the world, what happened in the last uh, 15 years. And European Union is number three. And when we look at the future, we see that there is even a further change in the geography of energy, and this is extremely important. What is happening is that the India is moving up in the, it is significant in the global energy issues, whereas Europe goes to number five below Africa. Why it is happening? Because we use in Europe energy more efficiently, which is good news, but also changing dynamics of the economy population and others, and others are going up. So therefore, there's a big change. When I say the change in the geography of energy demand, it means the change of the emissions, geography of emissions, change in the investments of uh, energy. There are big changes there, and we all need to take this into consideration, because as you all know, I guess we will discuss mainland climate change uh, here. 
one ton of CO2 going to atmosphere from Shanghai or from uh, Paris or from Detroit or uh, uh, from Jakarta, it has the same impact on all of us. CO2 emissions don't have a passport. They, it is affecting all of us. Therefore, it, if we are serious about climate change, I underline this, if we are serious about climate change, then we have to have a global view of the world, global view of the energy markets. Now, looking at the different fuels, who are the winners, who are the uh, losers in the global energy uh, mix? First of all, biggest growth comes from renewable energies. About 45% of the growth in global energy demand will be met by renewable energies. Solar and wind, but also bioenergy, let's don't forget it, modern bioenergy is very important, hydropower, uh, geothermal, and others, they have the lion's share in terms of the growth of the uh, uh, future. The second biggest growth comes from uh, natural gas. And natural gas growth is not only driven, as you used to know, on the power uh, uh, generation, but more and more with the industry sector, keyword petrochemicals and uh, others. In terms of oil markets, we see two opposite trends. In the advanced economies, oil demand is in a decline, especially driven by the efficiency improvements, but also uh, electric cars uh, and others. But the very strong growth comes from the emerging world, driven by trucks, driven by planes, driven by mainly petrochemical industry. So in some, we expect oil demand continue to grow slower than in the past, but still it grows. For coal, we see again two opposite trends. In advanced economies, a significant decline, and in South and Southeast Asia, still a growth, which more or less at global level gives us a flat trend of uh, uh, coal, and as a result of that, we see flat uh, growth of coal in our uh, base uh, scenario with the current policies. And I will come to coal in a moment in a different context. I know that uh, when I am in uh, Brussels, the least discussion I find is on oil, and it is the reason every time I came, I speak on uh, oil. So, because we see a significant challenge coming for all of us, and it is our job, because we were built as an oil security organization. We changed this, of course. In addition to oil security, we work on electricity security, gas security, clean energy transitions and everything, but oil security is still very important. And, ladies and gentlemen, we work on oil issues many, many years. It is very rare that we have a period like this when the, the power of geopolitics is so much pronounced on the oil markets and more to come. 
When we look at the oil uh, demand, as I said, the demand is growing slightly, but uh, surely driven by trucks, uh, the planes, Asia has just started to fly. Big growth in the Asian uh, uh, aviation and most important, the petrochemical industry. So, where will the production come from? This is the key question when we look at the seven, eight years of time. So, first of all, existing fields, when we look at it, we see that many of the existing fields will be soon in a decline. Oil fields are like uh, human beings. When they are young, they are very productive. They come to a certain peak, and, but they afterwards, when they get tired, slowly but surely they decline. And here what we are seeing, all the mature fields in a decline. And there's a big gap. How are we going to meet that gap? We look at all the investments in the last two, three years for the new oil projects. There is a very weak appetite. Very weak compared to historical trends. Very few people invest in oil projects because of the very uncertainty we are now, mainly because of that. And when we look at those projects outside of the United States, they are only covering a, a significant but a limited part of that gap. Everybody's expectation is, the hope people say, how we meet the, close the gap is one word, in fact two words, U.S. shale. U.S. shale has been growing very strongly, as again IEA in the year 2009 rightly envisaged, but in order to fill that gap, U.S. shale need to grow, grow in seven years more than 10 million barrels per day, which means in seven years, U.S. will create one Russia. Russia is, as you know today, a very, very large producer of oil. As a result of decades of investment, geological work and everything, can U.S., in addition to what they produce now, in seven years, can add one addition in Russia? They may or they may not, but it's a tall order. But given the very big numbers coming from U.S., this is uh, something that we need to put in a uh, context. A big, big, big uh, challenge there. Gas. Currently, EU is the biggest gas importer of the world, hence gas security, hence the energy union. How to secure in the most economic way, but when we look at the future, it is changing. The China is reaching uh, EU and becoming a major driver of gas markets. And ladies and gentlemen, there is one single most important driver of China coming as a giant consumer in the gas markets. One single most important. It is to reduce the air pollution in the cities. At the end of last year, Chinese Communist Party Congress 
the discussions on energy has been summarized by President Xi under the motto of making the skies of China blue again. And this is one of the measures they are, uh, China is uh, taking. In addition to, I will come in a moment, being the champion of renewable energy expansion in terms of uh, volumes. And this is a major change on the demand side happening. Strong growth on gas, mainly driven by China, but other countries as well. There is also a big change on the production side of gas, which is the very fact that in addition to the current champion of LNG, Qatar, two other champions are coming. Australia and United States. In four or five years of time, we will have three exporters in the Champions League. US, Australia, and Qatar, about 100 BCM LNG uh, capacity. And this would mean that the current competition between pipeline and LNG may change. As you know, gas is transported in two ways, pipelines with the pipes, and the other one is with the ships, with the, with the tankers, with LNG. Currently, for example, in the context of EU, we see that the uh, pipeline has a huge advantage, but with the change in the gas markets, with the recent developments, we expect that the pendulum switches and the share of LNG will increase. And this increase of LNG in a global scale is much more pronounced than in EU. In the year 2000, there were only five LNG importing countries in the world. And as of next year, this five will go to 48. Many LNG importing countries trying to make most of the growing LNG opportunities and LNG wave. Now, I have only four or five slides to uh, slides here left, but with all respect to uh, the, uh, the World Energy Outlook team, I have two favorite slides. And one of them is the next one, because it is very uh, critical. Now, Every year, we count how much money is invested in energy, entire energy system. Solar panels, the coal plants, the uh, refineries, uh, the uh, uh, industry facilities, everything, all the energy systems, grids, entire, how much money, and how much it should be invested more, and we think each year the world has to invest about two trillion US dollars, the entire world. But this is not the most important thing. The most important thing is, for me, we check the, where do the investments come from? What is the source of finance? What drives the investments? And the answer is very, in my view, illuminating, namely, about 
of the investments coming to the markets is either directly by government-led institutions or as a result of, as a response to government regulations, uh, such as the renewable auctions, for example. So 70% of the investment decisions, and as you know, in the energy world, when you take an investment decision of building a power plant, it is a lifetime for you many, many years, 40 years, when you build a refinery, it is the same. When you build a grid, it is the same. Therefore, the, our future, the energy world's future, lies in the hands of the governments. The investments, market-driven investments, as a result of the changes in the oil and gas price, or the electricity prices, is only 30% just in the made in the free market conditions. It is the, therefore very important to help the governments to make the right decisions a hard work, but this is the, I think, the only way to reach some results. Now, I would like to move slowly to Europe and European uh, power uh, system and we know that uh, tomorrow there'll be important document uh, released by the uh, commission and uh, we hope that it will make the, uh, the decision makers uh, life easier, much more clear, much more transparent and uh, brings uh, good news for the European citizens. When we look at the ladies and gentlemen, our expectation, what happens in the EU power uh, uh, system, there are a couple of things that I wanted to share with you. Coal. Coal is in a decline in the EU as a result of two things. One, many of the coal plants coming to the end of their lifetime, anyways. And second, many countries are pushing for early retirements of their coal plants. Therefore, the share of coal goes from about 25% to around uh, uh, 5%. Nuclear, with the current policy, is the same story. The many nuclear power plants are coming to end of their lifetime. There is, a, in general, hesitation of extending the lifetime uh, in Europe, plus the, uh, some countries are uh, pushing for early retirements and the appetite for building new nuclear power plants is not great in Europe, therefore the share of nuclear is declining, a point that I will come in a moment uh, later. In terms of gas, we think gas will grow in the next few years to come, then then decline the share driven by the efficiency policies on the electricity consumption side and others and at the same time, the being squeezed by the growing share of renewable energies. Then you have the other renewables here, bioenergy, in our view, a blind spot of the renewable energy discussion, modern bioenergy, is still having an important part in the electricity mix, and the solar energy is growing strongly, 
less strongly than the rest of the world, but still growing strongly. And the news is for us, the wind energy is becoming the number one source of power generation in Europe less than 10 years of time. This is mainly because of the policies of the governments uh, and the commission, but also declining uh, costs. And when I say the wind energy, of course, onshore plays a major role, but we are, as the International Energy Agency, very hopeful for the offshore wind. And here, since uh, there are many colleagues, uh, mainly from uh, EU here, my humble advice to our European colleagues, you all remember that the, I, think you, I believe you all remember, in the solar energy, Europe was the leader, pioneer of solar energy many years ago, put a lot of subsidies, efforts, political efforts, financial efforts, but now solar energy is growing, but the drivers of solar energy in the world, in terms of technology, exports, and so on, is not in Europe. Now, in the case of offshore wind, Europe is currently a leader in terms of technology, know-how, and everything. And perhaps this time, learning from the solar experience, offshore wind could well be a European trademark. And Europe can be a technology exporter, experience exporter, and uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, a political uh, exporter in that respect. And uh, linking this also with the, uh, the efforts on uh, hydrogen energy, uh, which I will come also in a second, is very important. So therefore, we think wind is a, uh, will be the number one source of power generation in uh, Europe. Now, wind is growing. Solar is growing everywhere, but this is a good news. But this brings also a problem with itself. Now, I mentioned to you that the energy demand grows very strongly. Electricity demand grows two times higher than the energy demand, but the variable renewables are growing four times higher than the electricity demand. So therefore, the share of the PV and wind in the electricity generation mix in Europe and elsewhere is going to increase. And we then face a problem, what happens if there is no wind? What happens if the, the sunshine is not uh, strong enough for a long period of time? Therefore, we believe the magic word in this new electricity systems we are having is the flexibility. Flexibility, creating flexibilities in our power systems is a must for all the governments and regulators. When we look at the share of PV and solar, if it is small, it is not a big problem. We can accommodate this with our current power systems. It is managing them a bit uh, uh, better. But when it starts to increase, uh, to close to 25, 30%, like in Germany or EU in general, then you start to think 
how we can make, create flexibilities in the system. Demand-side responses, creating demand-side responses, or looking at the storage, different storage uh, options, or to make uh, investments in the firm capacities. Because we know that the share of, as our numbers show, PV and wind will increase, further increase. So uh, then we have to find the appropriate valuation of the creating flexibilities in the system. Nobody will build a flexibility because they want to be helpful, supportive of the power system, unless you give them incentives. And it's important to have the, the incentives there. And uh, without having the right framework for uh, creating uh, flexibilities, we may end up with the increasing share of renewables, curtailment, or higher use of fossil fuels. It can uh, create some results which are not in line with the, our point of departure. Therefore, the key word is here. When a government tells me, when we talk about the renewables, if the energy minister says, we are going to increase the share of renewables, I tell them, good, yes, but immediately the second question, yes and not a full stop, yes, comma, what are you doing for flexibilities? You have to do this simultaneously. Otherwise, uh, electricity security and the, uh, the economics of uh, renewables will be affected uh, from that. I would like to talk about nuclear power. I know that this is an issue that, uh, again, like oil, not very much uh, at the top of the discussion agenda here, but I see an important trend, even though you like it or dislike it, the trend that uh, we all need to be aware. Now, when we look at the nuclear power globally, we see two completely opposite trends. In the advanced economies, we are seeing that in the absence of the, the extension of the lifetimes of the existing uh, plants, which is the case in many countries, and uh, not building uh, nuclear power plants, the share of nuclear power is in a deep dive. You want it or don't want it, it's up to you, but this is a number. That's what we are seeing, a big, big, big decline. Let's not forget that the nuclear provides a base load electricity and it does not emit CO2 emission. So this shaded part, you have to uh, fill with uh, PV or wind on top of the increasing the share of uh, renewables. This is one trend that we have to be aware of that. Number one. A second trend, completely opposite. We are seeing that in the emerging world, nuclear growth is very, very strong, especially in China. And what is happening as a result of that? You know that uh, we all know the United States has been the number one 
nuclear power since several decades. And with, this, with these policies, less than 10 years of time, China will be the number one nuclear power of the world. So this is something, these two trends, we have to think in terms of the electricity markets, in terms of the emissions, in terms of the safety, in terms of, in my view, geopolitics beyond others. These are two trends just putting on the table. Now, I have my uh, last two slides, and I will uh, leave it there. I mentioned to you that the electricity is the main focus of our work this year, because electricity is growing very strongly. But we ask ourselves, yes, we see electricity demand is growing uh, very strongly, in fact, almost in linear terms in our uh, base uh, scenario, in our new policy scenario. But, ladies and gentlemen, there is a huge potential that the electricity consumption globally can grow even faster than our uh, strong growth expectations, driven by mainly digitalization, mainly by electric buses, huge growth across the world, electric cars, industry facilities, and we said, what happens? What are the consequences? If the future is electric, and we, have, we said, let's see if the electricity uh, penetration of our energy market is much higher than our current expectation, which is already very strong, what are the uh, consequences? I wanted to share with you two of them. Number one, on the oil markets. We may well see if the future is electric, global oil demand may plateau and slightly decline. Mainly, it's important, electric buses followed by electric cars and home heating transforming from oil and gas to electricity. This can happen. This is not our main bet, but this is a very important option. Future is electric can be an option we should put in our minds, especially if the prices, government policies, to get the investment 70%, is there to support such a, a transition. This is one major consequence. The other one is on the climate change. In my view, there is a wrong perception globally, which is electrification is equal to less CO2 emissions. It is not wrong. It is absolutely wrong. It is absolutely wrong. And our numbers show that. In order to, in order to see a positive impact of electrification on the CO2 emissions, 
you have to make much, much bigger efforts in terms of the zero carbon, less carbon technologies than we have in our main case, where we see, as I show you, big growth of renewables. It's still dominated by fossil fuels. So therefore, once again, electrification alone doesn't mean decarbonization. Another point that we wanted to make. I mentioned to you that uh, I have two favorite slides, and this is the second one I wanted to show you now. Now, we have all the uh, reports we read, we heard, uh, we didn't read some of us, but uh, we have uh, highlighted the, uh, the findings of the IPCC report. We all know Paris targets and others. Now, we wanted to show you what we believe, IEA believes, we need to do in order to be in line with those targets, Paris targets and, and beyond. First of all, as I told you, with the NDCs or with the current policies or with our main scenario, global emissions are still declining, it's still increasing, still increasing. 2017 increase, 2018 I just announced another increase and this will continue. Now, I asked Lara and her colleagues to do a Herculean task. Please, I did thank them. You should also thank them because a very important service what they have done. I asked them the following question. Please look at the entire energy infrastructure today in the world, energy consuming facilities, power plants, industry, cars, trucks, refineries. In the next 25 years, with those facilities, forget a moment, the new ones we are going to build, forget that moment, those new facilities themselves, how much CO2 they will emit without building anything, and how does it compare with the our Paris targets, how much room we have with the current ones, current power plants, current refineries, throughout their economic lifetime, the normal life. And they come up with, in my view, a very striking result. From the existing, ladies and gentlemen, existing capital stock, power plants and everything, the emissions coming from there in the next 25 years is equal to 95% of the budget given to us in Paris. So 2040, we have to be 18 gigatons to reach the Paris targets and we eat up only by the existing ones 95% of that budget. So, 
How can we reach Paris then? The only way is we all, entire world, go to bed, a winter sleep for 25 years. It is the only way to reach the Paris. If we are only focused on the new builds, you are making a big mistake. You cannot save the world. I am very sorry. What you have to do, what we have to do, is two things. One, the new investments make them as much as possible sustainable. Number one. Number two, and much more importantly, try to improve the existing infrastructure. If you leave them as they are, no chance whatsoever. I can tell you. Somebody will buy a car tomorrow here. Somebody, one of the countries represented here, build a, a coal plant. The other country will build a refinery. No way. Nor if you are serious about this story. Again, I underline, if you, if you are serious, I underline. You have to look at this. What can we do? How can we intervene to the existing one? Where is the problem? For me, ladies and gentlemen, I am saying this since many months, the issue is the inefficient coal plants in Asia. Today in Asia, ladies and gentlemen, we have current plants and the plants under construction close to 2,000 gigawatts of coal plants. 2,000 gigawatts. Yes, we have coal plants everywhere. In Europe or in the United States. But in those places, Europe and the United States, coal plants are about, on average, 41 years old, very close to the retirement. But in Asia, the average age is 11 years old. 40 more years with you. 40 years. So, what are we going to do? If you go to, as a colleague from Brussels, an NGO or a government official to Jakarta or Bombay, can you please shut down your coal plant because we want so to reach Paris? You will have a problem. Because they are bringing with those plants electricity to their citizens who suffer not to have it. They will tell you and rightly so, what have you been doing since several decades? You have been using coal. It is now my turn to use it, the cheap electricity, my domestic production. In my view, they have a point. So, we have to find a way, and one of the ways that we suggest is two things, especially in the context of coal. One, to create a momentum there, one is the carbon capture, utilization, and storage. This is an extremely important technology. It is the, I know very well, it is not flying yet, but as of tomorrow, we will see, hopefully, the start of the second birth of the CCUS. UK Energy Minister, Mrs. Claire Perry and myself invited the world energy leaders to Edinburgh tomorrow to give a big push to the CCUS together with the president of COP24 
to make the CCUS part of the climate change debate. Some of the ministers coming from different countries, from China, from Middle East, and from uh, US, uh, Europe, make me believe, together with the several CEOs of the energy industry, it is now time to push it, looking at this picture. That's number one. Number two, in some cases, with the countries who have the ability to do so, early retirement could be an option. But this is, once again, to finish, I am finishing in two minutes. The issue is, if you only focus on the new bills, it should be PV, it should be wind, you are seeing a very minuscule part of the problem. I am sure to tell you this. You can make yourself happy, but you cannot save the world. If you are serious, you look at the numbers and you make the hard choice to look at those issues and to change those trends. Let me finish by uh, telling you uh, that uh, we are worried as an international energy organization, we are energy professionals, as Mr. Chairman said in the beginning, not the supply and demand, but the politics, geopolitics is becoming more and more important for the oil and energy markets in uh, uh, general. In terms of oil markets, in addition to these geopolitical tensions, we see a growing mismatch with the demand and the weak appetite for the investment for 2025, which means tomorrow. Electricity bringing huge opportunities for everybody, much more comfortable life, easier life, much modern lifestyles, increasing productivity, but increasing share of PV and uh, wind, which is a very welcome news, brings challenges with itself, and here the magic word is flexibility. Creating flexibilities in the system for governments, utilities, regulators, and uh, uh, others. We believe at the IEA, given the climate change, the order of magnitude of the challenge, we do not, ladies and gentlemen, have the luxury to focus on our own darling solutions. We have to look at all the solutions that are there to help us fuse technology to help us to change the, uh, that very varying trend, which is a real trend. It's not a trend of how many reports we print. It's a trend of how many CO2 emissions go to atmosphere. It's a real number. And here, many new uh, uh, technologies we have to look, in addition to CCS, I mentioned hydrogen power, very important, and Japan is the chair of G20 next year, and I'm very thankful to Prime Minister Abe and Japanese government for the G20 leaders next year choosing hydrogen as a main topic and asking the IEA to brief the G20 leaders and getting up getting from that meeting uh, decisions which could give a big boost to hydrogen across the uh, uh, world. And I will finish my uh, words by uh, going to my very first uh, point I made on the role of governments. The, where we will go from here, we don't know. It is still open. But responsibility, good and bad responsibility, is on the shoulders of governments. The investment numbers show that. 
and uh, therefore it is the very reason International Energy Agency is working with all the governments I mentioned in the beginning, Europe, North America, Asia, uh, Africa, and elsewhere to help them to make the better decisions and to come up with a better future for our energy, but as important as that for our environment. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> Colleagues, as I said in my introduction, this is full of drama, tension, uh, and challenge. There was, that's a lot of dramatic tension you presented. And I haven't seen you so animated in many years, actually. It's good to see that in terms of what really we're almost getting to a tipping point, I feel, of issues. Um, sorry, I'm going to invite my other, other speakers to join the panel. But while they are, one of the things that occurs to me is, okay, I loved your favorite slide. So, you know, I, the takeaway is government is, is a key player. It's not simply about markets. Um, there's a new story of actually the U.S. turning away, I mean, shale is a new story, but the U.S. being a bigger supplier than the Middle East in the years to come. Um, and in terms of politics or security, the role of nuclear and actually China becoming a nuclear power. Please do take a seat. Please do take a seat. Um, and I suppose that, you know, the volatility and unpredictability was ever thus. If you, if you like. But I suppose one question I have in my mind is if you were to look back 10 years and you look ahead now and you, you are where we are, have things sufficiently changed? So if you aggregate, I, I loved your slide with the work of the colleagues who pull everything together to say actually how much we need to move forward. Yeah. So I'm asking you to build on that question really is that when you think in aggregate terms, are we moving in the right direction with the right speed and with the right investment? Because that's the, the million-dollar question, really, yeah. given the, all the outlooks we've had in the past 10 or 20 years. If we are, uh, if we are uh, going in the right direction, right speed, and the right destination is your question, my answer is absolutely not. That's it. Okay. I'm sure you guys will have a, a, a questions in relation to that. Thank you very much. The other thing is that in terms of you, you referred to the, uh, the opening up of different members. How are you modernizing the, the World Energy, I mean, the International Energy Agency? Now, we are doing uh, at least two things. One, uh, we have, uh, until 2015, we hit the US, Canada, Europe, Japan, Australia, and Korea, Korea, and New Zealand as our members. Mm -hmm. But our numbers show that there's a changing geography of energy, and the emissions and the investments come from the China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa. And it is the reason we have taken them on board as the IEA family, and we are working with those countries very closely. Mm -hmm. in, in India, almost every week there is an IEA uh, express delegation working with the Indian government to help them to make the uh, right decisions. And uh, it is the way we are doing. And the second thing is, IEA was known as the organization of the uh, oil security. We are now making a major push in terms of clean energy transitions and helping those countries how they uh, modernize their power systems, their grids, electric cars, okay. renewable integration, energy efficiency, very important. We are the champion of pushing energy efficiency in those countries. 
So two ways, one, getting more countries, make, being more representative, even though I don't want to, I yet to be in uh, the United Nations, we are already 75%, almost 75% global energy consumption, but at the same time, helping the governments to make the right decisions so that they don't regret, as some countries do nowadays. But you're going to, I mean, when you think about what, what, your, what your information, your data demonstrates, is that actually power shifts to the east, yeah. consumption goes to the roof, yeah. but actually the, the US as a, uh, as a uh, shale oil you know, provider also shifts things. So there's a kind of geopolitics exactly. at play, which exactly. is going to be quite interesting for you exactly. as an agency to manage, regardless of you being independent. Exactly. But there is the tension in there. Exactly. There's a, as I said, geography of energy is changing. In terms of demand, it is moving to Asia. In terms of production, oil and gas, now United States emerges. Indeed. In the, in, in, there are two different changes, and, the, and both of them has been successful being diagnosed by the IE, and is the reason we have this modernization effort. Okay, thank you very much, Fatih. We'll bring you back in a bit later. Please take your seat. I'm now going to invite Vice President Shevchevich to the platform. Now, sir, you, I hope, trusting the audience in the room here, we won't tell anybody, I promise. Give us a few highlights of what you're going to say tomorrow in your document. But also, also, I think, given the two things that, uh, that Fatih said. One was about actually governments matter in this. It's not simply government saying it's the market and it's the private sector. This is a government-driven agenda and actually it makes an impact given that slide. And the second thing is about wind. Now there is a lot of wind in Europe politically. Can I say it that way in terms of, that was meant to be a joke that really fell flat here. But in terms of, you know, in terms of wind at, at being a pioneer, um, is that something you're going to forestall in your, in your strategy for tomorrow? So please, we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning to everyone, dear, dear Fatih, dear colleagues in the panel, ladies and uh, gentlemen. Uh, as you can see from very comprehensive presentation uh, of Fatih, the world energy outlook is not only rather bulky document full of very precious information but i'm quite pleased that it's still in galatasaray colors as the last time so the fatty keeps uh, the traditional high quality and support for his uh, for his football team i really uh, would like to thank him uh, for this close cooperation and for the fact that uh, that Mechtil is now working for both excellent organization, European Commission and International uh, Energy Agency, because it uh, helps us to work uh, with uh, very precise figures that we do not have to base uh, our policies on guesses, and we can really go through this amalga uh, amalgamation of uh, the most uh, concrete scenario, which are very important for our decision maker, uh, decision making. Uh, actions because it's uh, quite clear that we would not achieve uh, the results in the tackling climate change if there will be no clear political steer and no clear cooperation and coordination uh, among uh, the governments. Therefore, I also would like to thank Friends of Europe for organizing this event on a regular annual basis because it's kind of start, uh, uh, I would say, the, the winter season in discussing what is new in uh, the energy world, how we can tackle the, the climate uh, uh, change better. And I think in particular uh, this year it's very important because we have uh, several very important events linked together. First one, I think we are still kind of recovering 
from that uh, very uh, stark report of the IPCC panel, which was clearly telling us that uh, even with our efforts and with our Paris commitments, we are not delivering the change we hope to deliver. That even our Paris agreements, uh, uh, commitments are not enough and we have to do better. That we have to focus our efforts more on 1.5 degrees overheating than 2 degrees uh, Celsius because the difference, what the half, uh, 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 half, uh, half uh, uh, point, half a percentage does to our planet is tremendous and uh, who would be suffer the most are especially the people in vulnerable parts uh, of uh, our planet. Second, I think very important uh, moment uh, comes that uh, I think already on Friday I will be in Katowice and we are uh, starting what is, I would say, the most important COP meeting after the, the Paris one. We have to agree on single rule. We have to really have very honest discussions as a global community, how we are going to take our climate efforts further. What are we ready to do? What kind of political and economic choices we are ready to make uh, to uh, make sure that we would uh, save the planet for our children? And I think uh, that the third uh, very important uh, moment into which I would come uh, uh, in, a, in a few seconds is that tomorrow we are going to present our long-term strategy so I will try to reveal you some secrets if you promise me you are not going to tell it to your friends or anybody outside of this room. I think that uh, what Fatih was actually uh, very clearly highlighting is uh, the fact that uh, current policies and current energy world is very much uh, at uh, the crossroads. One hand uh, we see the impressive uh, progress uh, on renewables, mostly driven by the fact that investing in renewables is a good business case, that the costs are falling, the results are impressive, and uh, that uh, the corporate social responsibility is playing more and more important role because the consumers want to know how the product was manufactured, what kind of energy uh, was used and how the companies are really dealing with their responsibility towards air pollution, towards the citizens and towards the future of um, uh, our planet. And um, therefore I think that uh, if you look uh, at uh, uh, these tendencies uh, and when I was looking very carefully through the charts uh, Fatih was presenting, we agree with him that already in 2030 more than half of electricity produced uh, in Europe will come from renewable sources. And of course, uh, we are very glad that this is not happening only in Europe, that uh, this is the worldwide trend and we are very pleased about that because even if you look at impressive uh, results in China and India, we still have to somehow bear in mind that one third of the global emissions is coming from China, that uh, energy efficiency industry still has to do some catching up and that we bear big responsibility towards Africa towards uh, India and that we should be also ready to share our technologies and also be um, very fair if it comes uh, uh, to the fair trade uh, with the raw materials. Why I'm mentioning this at this stage? Because if you look at uh, what uh, is really a success story in Europe and I believe that uh, we would keep the leadership uh, uh, in a renewable sector uh, looking at both wind and I have also slightly different opinion that Fatih on solar industry as well. We also need a lot of raw materials uh, for the wind turbines. 
If I look, you know, how much of a raw materials do you need just for one wind turbine of three megahertz? And I would underline that this is a small one. You need 1,200 tons of concrete. You need more than 300 tons of, uh, of steel. You need, I think, around five tons of copper. So all this requires, I would say, circular approach to this energy transition and, of course, fair trade and sustainable raw materials to make sure that uh, we are going to build these huge wind parks uh, in the Europe and uh, offshore around the Europe. And I think that um, if you are talking about uh, PV panels, I think we just have to learn from these uh, uh, solar panels uh, how to do better in the future. Then we come up with this innovation. It was invented in the European labs, and then I think we could have do much better with the first employment, with selecting the, the technology types, and really adjusting our uh, um, energy, energy networks much faster so that, uh, uh, that uh, solar industry would be, would be really very much driven from here. But I think that if you look at the whole complex, we shouldn't forget that if it comes to renewable energy also in the solar system, more than 30 patents are still with European industry. I sincerely believe that uh, we are best system integrators, we are stronger in inverters, and we know how to accommodate the renewable energy into our system. So really we are pioneering, we are front runners, we are global leaders, and we have every intention to remain this in the future as well. I think that what would be, of course, uh, very key in the future would be to progress uh, much stronger in transport. I think here, again, uh, the importance not only on uh, emission standards for cars, vans, uh, and, and trucks uh, would be key, but also we need progress on energy storage, on batteries, and on the batteries, I would say, of the new, greener, and more sustainable qualities than what we have today. We want the batteries not only to, to power our cars, we want them to play a very important balancing role. We want our batteries to be able to have this vehicle to great possibility to help us to smarten our system. And of course we want to use the circular economy at a new level, really to reuse and recycle all precious materials which are coming uh, uh, after the use of the battery cycle and here, again, I believe that uh, uh, Europe, with that very well compatible new electricity market design, which is about to be uh, agreed upon, and the, the new priorities for the, the clean mobility, which will go very well hand in hand, will also show some kind of blueprint, I would say, pioneering ideas uh, for other major uh, companies uh, to follow. I think that... Uh, if we are looking uh, into the uh, future, it's uh, quite clear that we need uh, to resolve uh, a lot of dilemmas and in many areas we just simply have to do better. Therefore, I really would like to thank Fatih for his kind and appreciative words uh, of the Energy Union. When I was speaking to you the first time, I remember that there was uh, a lot of question marks, how we can accomplish all that in, uh, in four years which are ahead of us. So today I'm very glad to tell you that the Energy Union is one of the Juncker's Commission priority would be completed uh, till the last dot. I am pretty convinced about it. We are completing our work on the clean energy packet, package. I think we did a lot on energy security. We invested a lot in hardware and software to make sure that our internal energy market uh, 
uh, is, is performing better. And uh, uh, what is remaining is our efforts on clean mobility and uh, new focus on research and innovation. And then to get our member states more on board uh, with uh, their concrete uh, plans, how they are going to transpose the Paris commitments, this new European framework, into national policymaking. What kind of national energy and climate plans uh, they are going to send us by the end of this year and how we are going to make them uh, better together as a member state, at the European institutions, so they would be ambitious, compatible with what we want uh, to achieve as a European Union. Of course, we would need to make sure that the stability of the grid, flexibility of the grid, and cross-border electricity transmission infrastructure would work better than today. I think we have to find good answers and overcome the current situation where we invest millions of euros, very often from the EU budget, into build-up of the new interconnections for electricity, and more than 50% of the capacity is blocked by the regulators. That's not good for internal energy market, it's not for free circulation of uh, renewables, and it's not good for, for the, the prospect of the future. We just simply have to find a solution, regional cooperation, European cooperation, and do better. We need uh, really uh, the flexibility and better integration and renewable in our system. I believe that a lot will be done when this new electricity uh, market design is approved because all the things Fatih was uh, uh, referring to, new technologies, energy storage, uh, high frequency electricity uh, uh, trading, demand side management, all this is including there and it's putting on the new competitive level, and I believe that it would have deeply transformative uh, effect uh, on how we produce, distribute, and consume uh, electricity. I also support very much the further sector coupling, not only in the energy sector, and I think that uh, the next commission will look very deeply into possibility of uh, power to gas, uh, sector coupling. I think we have to develop the technology of power to X, because this is one of the key uh, technological milestone we have to overcome when we come to the cleaner future. But I think that we need to think even more and, and I would say strengthen what we started in industrial sector coupling where, when, uh, where power generation stakeholders would have to work much closer with the transport sector and uh, with the energy uh, intensive industry because we have to have progress in all of these sectors and they steps have to be much more coherent and compatible in the past because the success of each of them would reinforce the overall result. And of course, smartening of the grid based on, based on digitization, all the important work uh, with data uh, where we are under tremendous uh, pressure from one side to defend the privacy of the data as our citizens demand and at the same time to allow uh, the creation of the new business model which would optimize uh, uh, the use of energy in our grids and prevent us from cyber attacks which could be more and more damaging day by day. So this is, I would say, the tall order uh, for the future and uh, therefore we very much welcomed that invitation which came from the European Council, for, from the head of states and government, and from the European Parliament to have a deeper look what the Europe should do, not only with that time horizon of 2030, 
but to look for 2050 and beyond, how Europe can contribute to tackling the climate change and to make sure that we will, that we will build a climate neutral economy in Europe already in the second half uh, of uh, this century. And it's quite, it's quite a challenge because I was quite encouraged and impressed by our member states and European Parliament pushing for higher targets for renewables for 2030 and higher targets for energy efficiency. But even with these targets, if we continue along the line of these agreed uh, uh, scenarios, we would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 only by 60%. We need to get to higher levels. Therefore, we've been looking through all possible technologies and we've been looking through all possible solutions. Uh, and uh, tomorrow we are going uh, to present a long-term strategy which we called clean planet for all. Because I believe that the choices, the solutions we are going to put on the table, the debate which will start as of tomorrow in Europe and I believe the worldwide, will really decide how the global community is ready to adopt choices which would be so crucial for the next uh, generation. We looked through today existing technologies and we went uh, for five scenarios which would give us uh, the 80% uh, of greenhouse gas reductions, uh, three of them based mostly on the decisions on the supply side, two of them focused on the demand side. Then uh, we made one combined scenario which would get us uh, to the minus 90% of the greenhouse gas emissions and we have two scenarios which would get us to the climate neutrality. And of course, especially in these two scenarios, to get from 80 to 100, that's, that's, that's not easy. There you really require not only combined uh, technological effort, you also need strong uh, policy making. You need uh, to develop the technologies which would be able to get the carbon from the environment and store it safely. We need to make the breakthrough with CCS, CCU, and we also have to work with our population to acquire not only new skills, but also we have to push for the behavioral change because without that, I think it would be very difficult. And we have to look at our nature, not only at something to protect, but also at the natural sink of the CO2, which you would need to use in much more intelligent way to make sure that uh, climate neutrality would be uh, achieved uh, at the half uh, of uh, this century. The lessons for stakeholders, for the industry and for the policymakers, that if you want to achieve that, we need to really get rid with this silo approach once for all. Because we need the progress in power production, in building energy efficiency, in transport, in energy intensive industry. We have to look for new ways uh, how to do agriculture more sustainable and we have uh, to uh, look how we can make sure that we would find proper financing for all these changes. To conclude, I would use only two figures. When I was asking my expert, please give me just three figures to just show me what is the, what is the scale of the challenge. And you would be surprised, it's not that dramatic. When I was asked, okay, what would be the can of uh, Coca-Cola 
costing now and after all these idealistic and ideal scenarios are implemented. Difference in the price would be one cent. If we, if we are looking about what kind of uh, um, investment challenges ahead of us, today we are spending something like 2% of our GDP on energy infrastructure. If we would go for this top-class scenario, these uh, expenditures, uh, and we should start to speak about them as investment into the future, would increase from 2% to 2.8%. Again, something which is feasible. And the last figure I would use, because Fatih was talking a lot about gas uh, and oil and uh, unpredictability and, and, and the cost uh, of uh, imports to the major economy. In our scenario, we are also looking at the possibilities where the imports of fossil fuels uh, would decrease in the period between 2030 to 2050 by uh, 70 percent. What it would mean for European economy? So it would mean that the savings would be somewhere between two to three to three trillion euros. That's two thousand to three thousand billions euros. I think that's quite a lot of money for the sound and future-oriented investment. So what I want to say is that uh, I really thank you very much for kind of opening and raising the curtain on what I believe will be one of the most important uh, communication of uh, this uh, European Commission, because it's not only for European public, but I think it's intended for the global audience, because we can save the planet only when we would be working together. And uh, I hope that uh, Wednesday, tomorrow, will open the big debate about how we Europeans, how we global community are ready to roll our sleeves up and uh, really deal uh, with this uh, challenge. So in 2020, Europe can come up with a concrete uh, strategy after what I believe would be very good debate and after what I hope uh, will be a new momentum which we will generate globally in the important task of tackling global change together. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, what I'll challenge um, Fatih to do tomorrow is whether, when I asked you that question about whether governments are, or agencies are moving fast enough with a clear pathway, with the right investment, after you've read the launch tomorrow, um, it'll be good to know what your response is. Because I thank you for making the points that you did. Absolutely are the right ones, and I think it shows that there's the right kind of ambition. But I think the, there is always a but. It's will it be fast enough? Will it have the right investment? Will it spend wisely rather than more? There's a kind of this thing about actually the money's there, but how do you spend it differently? Not for you to answer now, but I think those are the kind of questions or issues that we need to be uh, thinking through. I'm going to move straight on to the other speakers that we have on the panel. I'm conscious of time. I'm so sorry because we started late uh, and I'm trying to make up time. So I, but I may finish a little bit later if you forgive me for that. Um, therefore, we can, you know, see what we can get on. Now, we've had like, we've had the IEA, we've had the commission. Now, uh, let's move to the private sector. We have two private sector energy companies on the panel here today, and I want to invite um, any to, to start first. And my question uh, to you, uh, Francesco, is that, is given what you've heard, uh, from the, the from the report, and obviously that you know you've got the role of government, but you, interesting for you in particular, there's two elements. One is the economics of energy and the transition that's required, and the mix that's going, likely to emerge to 2040. 
What's, what's the implications for you as a really large global company in that respect? And related to that, what are you going to do about your carbon footprint as a result? Thank you very much. I think that clearly all the, all the work that IEA is doing and is a basis for us in our business decision and in all our analysis. So I thank you, Fatih, for, for all the stimulus that we receive. Clearly, from our point of view, we are an oil and gas company that is becoming an energy company. Actually, we were an energy company when oil and gas was essentially the main source of energy, and the, the, the recent changes has enlarged these boundaries to additional different way to produce energy. What I, what I believe it is relevant, it is interesting from our point of view, is the fact that we have to keep in mind that an energy system should keep certain characteristics should be reliable, affordable, should be economically sustainable in order to be environmentally sustainable. Because if we don't have the premises that I mentioned, also it is difficult to think an improvement to the energy system and the reduction of its carbon footprint. So I think that what happened in the past 10, 15 years is something that is revolutionary, but is potentially impacting some of these characteristics, in particular the reliability and affordability of the system. We introduced in the system two sources that are completely new. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, speaking about wind and solar and speaking about tight oil and oil gas was practically speaking about nothing. It was less than one million barrel per day of contribution to an overall demand that was close to 250 million barrel per day. So if you think the overall system was 250 million and the contribution of these new sources was just one million. Now this, the world has grown. We are producing 280 million, and the contribution of these sources is now close to 15 million. So now they are accounting renewable on their side, wind and solar, and tight oil shale gas to around 5%. What are the characteristics of these sources? These sources are fine, are absolutely a business case that is strong, it's working, but the main concern is these not, are not perfect. There is no perfect source of energy. This is something that we have to keep in mind. Each energy source has its pros and cons. Mm -hmm. Could be used in certain final use or not. So once we speak about renewables, the load factor of wind and solar on average is around 20%. It means that in our 24 hours time, only four hours, you could switch on your electricity plug and you will have energy coming in. There could be better site, better, better wind offshore, etc. There could be higher load factor, but it is the average. While, and this is the defect or the limit of renewables as they are. The other defect or limit of the other source, tight oil, is that the tight oil is a high declining source. So it's producing today, after one year, is 50% lower. So it requires an additional amount of investment to keep the system working. So the new sources of energy that are attracted the main growth in the past 10, 15 years are actually two sources with some limits and substantially requires a backload to support them. They require on one side power system or integrated network or battery system that will compensate sure. renewables once they are not working. On the other side, they require conventional oil, conventional contribution of fossil fuels in order to have the tight oil decline limited in the overall demand. So this is the problem of today working, the today work um, energy system. We are increasing the position, the contribution of these sources that have limit of intermittency on one side 
and the decline rate on the other side, and instead we are starving, reducing the amount of investment on the base load. So the future energy mix have to keep in mind to keep the system that is supporting these new emerging forces to keep that alive. Otherwise, what will be the result is substantially instability, volatility, potentially risk for the economy because the price is spiking, and therefore you are building a system that is intrinsically weak and becoming weaker and weaker as much as these new sources are expanding their role. So as an oil and gas company, energy yes. company, we have to continue to invest in this conventional source, trying to improve the limit of this conventional source. The limit of the conventional source are clearly their footprint, carbon footprint. We have to clean as much as possible the source. We have to make our operation more effective, more efficient. We have already fixed, from our point of view, a zero flaring target for, uh, uh, for gas flaring target for our operation. We are already, re we want to reduce uh, by 80% venting up to 2025. We will improve carbon footprint of our production by 43% from 2014 to 2025. And we target, and this is something that our CEO has already announced, that we are going to disclose in the, in the near future a net zero uh, emission target for our upstream operation. So this, okay. in order to make all our operation substantially zero impact in terms of uh, environment and footprint. Because the base load will remain. It is an essential source of future energy mix. We have to clean it as much as possible. As also Mr. Uh, Fatih presented before related to the, to the power plant, the coal power plant uh, that will remain and will be part of the future. So we have also to make uh, activities there on carbon capture or eventually carbon okay. sinks. So what you're saying is that you're abiding by the principle of that Fatih said about flexibility. You're going to kind of clean the system that you're operating in. You do more upstream, let's say, carbon cleaning, if you like. Exactly. And you're going to set, as you said, you've now set public targets, stretch targets on what you'll do across your operation yes. through the whole value chain? Through the up upstream operations for the time being, because this is a part in under the control, the full value chain that is means the, the, the carbon footprint for the, for the final consumption is also something that is related to demand changes. So it's something that is, let's say, out of our border for the time being. Clearly, we need it for the, time, for the first step to make a concrete step in order to make this kind of, uh, let's say, operation completely clean as, uh, as much as possible and up to, up to zero. In the, in the and uh, this, is kind of, this is a difficult question, actually, in the sense that when you think, when you think about your targets, okay, as a company, have you done any kind of benchmarking of companies of a similar size and a similar kind of scale to set your targets? There are companies that are setting targets. We are all together working in defining an improvement along these various targets. Sometimes we are speaking about long-term ambitions. Sometimes we're speaking more specific term and upstream. It is a work in progress. You have to understand that this system is a system that is evolving fast. Mm -hmm. We have to make a concrete step. We have to keep in mind the economic sense of what we are doing. Okay. And all things, it is a substantially a real approach, improvement towards what we are expecting to achieve in the middle-long term, according with the Paris Agreement. Okay, all right, thank you very much, and I'm sure that, you know, we'll have more questions as well. But let me move straight on to RTE. Um, and your, uh, Olivier, um, tell me what your, what your, given 
Given what we've heard so far, what do you think is key from your perspective in the energy transition? And also, in that context, what's the potential impact, positive or negative, of decentralization? I.e., you know, the consumer being in charge of electricity. It's like it's like Fetty says that renewables have been the kind of the the golden uh, you know halo of of you know saving our agenda. But actually, that's not the case. There's a view that actually decentralization will be a, the way forward to reduce our carbon footprint. Perhaps not your view. So the key issue for you in transition and decentralization. Uh, thank you for um, inviting me and giving me the opportunity to share with you uh, a few ideas about the condition of possible for energy transition. Uh, first of all, as a TSO, a TSO today is uh, operating an exchange platform, multi-form platform. So first is to exchange energy block between the different stakeholders, but also we are a platform to exchange information. And in that perspective, we provide a lot of information, real-time, in a very transparent way, but also forecast to be sure and to give advice about the way to manage this energy transition, keeping at each second today and tomorrow the possibility to supply a secure electricity, keeping in mind that we need to, uh, to have the balance between load and consumption second by second. So we made last year a very important assessment about what could be in France and uh, uh, the condition for this energy transition. We have a very specific uh, situation for electricity market in France with uh, a very high share of uh, nuclear yeah. and uh, the political decision uh, that has been taken as uh, three years ago uh, to reduce the share of nuclear power in France, which is at the moment about 75% to 50%. As a TSO, I will feel more comfortable with a, a, a lower share of uh, a nuclear power plant because when we want to balance a power system, first condition is to have a very diverse mix, what we call the energodiversity. And uh, it is one of the conditions of the success, is not to, to, be, uh, to rely only on one type of source, but a very large diversity in, in uh, energy uh, sources. Uh, to organize the transition, and uh, we've demonstrated that it was possible to, to, to have this transformation, I can just highlight a few uh, no-regret options. I can call that that way. Uh, first, I told you uh, to develop a very diverse mix. The second is about the consumption. Uh, what we do forecast is that for France, uh, we do not think that uh, we will have an increasing uh, for the uh, electricity consumption because we have two different phenomena. The first is uh, energy f uh, efficiency and new usage. New usage, for example, will be the result of uh, electromobility, but also uh, the development of uh, demography or uh, digital use. And there is a balance between that. And so our forecast is for France that for uh, the perspective of 2035, the electricity consumption, considering that we will have at that stage, at that date, uh, 15 million uh, electrical vehicles, we expect a stable uh, electricity consumption. 
On uh, the other side, we have to think about uh, what type of new sources, in fact, and uh, how to balance uh, increasing share of, uh, of renewable. And it has been said that flexibility is, uh, is very important. <clears throat> what we do think also, that is a high potential to work on the behavior of the consumer. And we feel responsible about that. There are different ways to work on that. First is to give through the markets of economical signal. But we do think that there is a place also for space for, for pedagogy. Because a part of the solution will be for the well-developed country. How we have a more frugal approach of energy use. And uh, it, it's what uh, Mr. Vice President, you called uh, yesterday when we met uh, the uh, LCD lifestyle. And as a TSO, we would like to promote such ideas. And with the digital solution, we can provide real-time information to the people so that they can make a clear relationship between the way IBF do have this impact on the uh, energy consumption. And it is in that perspective that uh, I, I do think that decentralization is very important. And we do not have, we do not have to oppose decentralization and, for example, building a strong energy uh, union at European level through, for example, the development of interconnection. Those are, uh, we need all of this. And we need to organize subsidiaries between the different territories scale. <clears throat> what is important with decentralization, it, in that perspective, the energy is closer to the consumer. Mm. And it helps to understand how my behavior will, will have an impact. And as a pedagogical tools, I think it's important but not in a perspective to become autonomous, because otherwise it costs a lot. It costs a lot, uh, and perhaps you will feel more uh, responsible, because you say, okay, I'm responsible, I will provide my whole source of energy. But, and it is the second message, uh, which is, uh, which is um, I would like to emphasize the idea about frugality. And you told that about that, uh, even the renewable sources, uh, which do not uh, emit, emit uh, CO2, mm -hmm. you need resources to build it. And we need also to consider the pressure on non-renewable uh, resources, uh, rare earths, for example, copper, and, and so on. And so it's a, it's a collective uh, uh, challenge that we have to face. And as a TSO, we try to provide more and more information about that. And for example, next year, the... the, the uh, the new uh, report that we, we will have to publish about the uh, forecast, we will integrate in the comparison of different scenarios, not only CO2 emission, but also what will be the pressure on specific resources like earth, rare, uh, copper, and so on. I think in that perspective that we all have this responsibility to promote frugality in energy use. Okay, two very, I mean, if you can be brief in your responses to this, if I may, is that whose role do you see as the kind of what you're calling pedagogy, i.e. the change behavior? Will you as a company say, if you're gonna have five baths a week, the impact of that on CO2 in your neighborhood or, your, or, the, or the globe is this, will you do that? And the second thing is actually, what's your hope of a connected energy grid in Europe? Do you see it happening? 
we, we want Which I know, Commissioner, is, I mean, Vice President, is a challenge to you, obviously, by the way, but, you know, there we are. Go on, Karen. Ah, we won't do that alone. I, I, uh, I say that we are uh, we're operating an exchange platform, and it's in providing relevant information, real-time information, that can be combined with other information, and so we have an agreement, for example, with the French agency ADEM, so that we can work together to provide such information. And I think that it's not a responsibility of only one player, but a collective one, to share information so that we can use all the different ways to provide pedagogy and to provide real-time sure. information. An example, for example, uh, because I'm well also um, committed in developing the smart grid solution, we know that in pilot project with smart grid, with smart meters, when you give uh, real-time information to the consumer, and for example, you give them the opportunity to be compared to their neighborhood and to say, okay, you have a family with two child and so on, and your consumption is 10% above the average of your surrounding. And when you give this information, the people, they, they start to, to think about that, to discuss with the family. And such information, it's very important to be provided okay. <clears throat> so that we can help all of us, all the people, to feel more responsible about the future of energy. Sure, I get that, but you know, collective responsibility always starts with someone taking the lead. Unfortunately, that's what life teaches, but I'm not going to come back to you on that anyway, because time is really short. But I think that, you know, there is something about who takes the lead, and actually, you haven't really answered my question on whether you are confident about the grid actually being coming into place, because it seems like a key piece of infrastructure if we're going to achieve some of the ambitions as we move forward. But we'll come back to that in a moment. I want to turn to, last but not least, Imke. Um, Given what you've heard, and the thing I would like you to focus on is that, I mean, everyone knows WWF and the role that you play globally and in Europe around some of these issues. That startling slide from Fatih about it's actually government that matters, not simply markets. How's that affecting your campaigning and uh, policy development agenda around the, these issues, but in particular? Yeah, thanks. I think that's a really good message, an important message from this report, um, because it also means that the scenarios and the trends we have seen in uh, the presentation this morning, we are not confined to those. It's up to governments to decide, as uh, Fatih concluded, to decide which pathway we actually take and how low carbon this pathway will be. And maybe it's obvious that our worry is on that side as well as on other sustainable development goals, which partly have been reflected in the sustainable development goals scenario of this report. So access to energy and air pollution as very important dimensions. But I think what we've are really worried about with, the, with this report are the mixed messages. While we think uh, the successful guidance coming from that report actually need to be grounded on what governments agreed already towards. And I think the two degrees has been mentioned, but also we've experienced there is a new reality with new science that yeah. has been brought up just less than two months ago. Indeed. So I think where does, how that does feature in the report is a big question, and the sustainable development scenario takes that into account, 
but in a very kind of, um, I think, narrow way in the sense that it's relying on BACS and CCUS as largely unproven technologies. They have to play a role, but we are not there yet. And we also know there are other solutions we have to look in, in particular if we want to reach sustainability, uh, sustainable development goals. So to mention the restoration of ecosystems, which provide not only an, uh, a very relevant um, um, yeah, removals and, and, and kind of stock thing for carbon, but also provides resilience to people, to ecosystems, and therefore have positive impacts on, um, on other elements of the sustainability goals. So a clear question, how can we build the 1.5 reality, mm -hmm. and not only how can we build, we need to steer policymakers to take this reality into account in making decisions. And therefore, I think we are very, very uh, much looking forward to tomorrow where the net zero commitment basically should provide a strong emphasis and strong guidance to leaders where investments have to go. Mm. And I think this also has been mentioned. We are looking at two problems. One is the lock-in in current technologies mm. and uh, kind of the pipelines we have committed to which eat up 95%, if I understood correctly, uh, of the carbon budget, which remains to stay with a 50% to well below 2 degrees, while we have to go much farther, further. And, and there, obviously, the question comes in, each investment we do, we need to check what it means in terms of carbon uh, in order to at least uh, respond to the climate change uh, requirements. And then, in addition, we have to check all the other points. Do you think, I mean, and this is very briefly, it's a very difficult question again, I'm sorry. Should we just get real about the 1.5? Should we just actually rethink the whole thing from your, from your perspective? Because there's so much, so much is being told to us. Actually, we are never going to get, though, even what we've heard from Fatih, that actually we're living in cloud cuckoo land if we don't actually redouble or triple our efforts in the next, at least in the next, what we've heard from experts, you, the next two or three years matter quite significantly, but so does the next 10. And actually, what we've seen in the past 10 years is not the kind of trajectory of development that we need. We have to actually accelerate it even more. It has to go from like here to like that, if we're gonna actually get to the mid-century point. What's your view, very briefly? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear looking at impacts, but also at costs and benefits, that 1.5 is something we should aim for. Um, I think that's, it's interesting how more and more benefits, and obviously that goes hand in hand with higher impacts we experience, but uh, yeah, not acting has costs, and less acting also has costs, so higher has, costs. Okay. So 1.5 is a pathway uh, which we absolutely should uh, So it has symbolic to. value to keep our minds focused, but yet the reality yes. of achieving it is... Okay, thank you. Colleagues, I'm so sorry it's taken so long to bring you into this conversation. We have about 10 minutes uh, to be able to do that. And what I'd like you to do is say who you are. And given the timing, um, please, no kind of rhetorical commentary, please, if you don't mind. Key question or a query that you have and say who it's directed to. So that, and there's mics floating around. My colleague, gentleman here on the right, and then the gentleman there. And I'll bring the lady in there in a moment. So I'll take three to begin with. Um, thank you very much. Uh, Colin Roach from Friends of the Earth Europe. Uh, two quick questions. 
Um, the first is about corruption in the oil and gas industry. Um, so the first question relates to the sponsor. We see over there the Italian company Eni are a sponsor of this event. Uh, yesterday a report was produced by Global Witness which said that a, a, um, a deal that any have been involved in, involved in may, may lead to the Nigerian people losing $6 billion. Um, and as a result, any are on trial for corruption in Milan. Not being investigated, but on trial as a company for corruption. So get to your yep. question, if you may. Because so, yeah. we've got, let me say, sure. I want, I want you to be to clear. I, no, no, I do, I, sure. I do. I understand your point, and also I'm yeah. really aware of your concerns about any, yes. but I want you to focus your question on what the issue is in energy transition mm. and climate change, as opposed to the company's corruption credentials. So focus on that rather than the other. Well, actually, I think it's, but they're both relevant. Um, okay. So they are, I think it's entirely relevant who we, who we have in our conversation. Am I, am I, for the people you talk about citizens, we, we work with citizens right around the world, including citizens of, of countries like Nigeria, who suffer not just from corruption, but also from the effects of climate change, from the fossil fuels sure, sure, sure. produced by any. So my questions are, isn't it time, first of all, that we, that we no longer give a, give a platform of respectability for companies involved or accused of, or on trial for, in this instance, corruption? And okay. secondly, as they're a fossil fuel company, isn't it time that we de decarbonize our climate change debate? Isn't it time that we, we faced up to the reality of the urgent climate catastrophe that is coming upon us and decarbonize our climate, climate change debate and stop having our, our, our events like this sponsored by fossil fuel companies? Um, so my questions are to, particularly to Mr. Okay. Sefcovich. Okay. Um, can you respond to those two questions? Okay, okay. Let's, let's come to that. You raised some interesting points, but I wonder how you might then change the world if you don't have the players actually involved in seeding that change. But let's, let's not go there directly. Uh, lady there at the back and then the gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, Flori Gonsolin from CEFIC, representing the European chemical industry. Thank you very much for the very interesting presentations uh, this morning. I have one question uh, to Fatih Birol and maybe uh, the representative from RTE. Uh, this morning, uh, Belgian scientist, uh, academic, uh, received uh, the Blondel Prize for his research on the uh, supergrid. And um, one of the solutions that uh, he's promoting to solve the uh, problem of variability of renewables is uh, to build electricity connections between Europe uh, and the US and to Greenland, where there is a huge potential for uh, wind energy. Is this something you think um, could be at all credible? What do you think about uh, working in this direction? And a second question to the whole panel. I see a big discrepancy uh, between what we hear on one hand, uh, world energy outlook, huge size of the challenge, we are not on track, and then the figures uh, that uh, were just disclosed by Mr. Shevchovich um, on uh, the very minor impact uh, that uh, carbon neutrality objective would have on our energy bills. I wonder if these figures are not a little bit dangerous because to me they sound too much like business as usual. No okay, so you're saying actually they should be higher. Can Is you that help your me point? to reconcile the two yeah. pictures? Okay, Thank you. great. Gentleman here. Thank you, Nikos Limperopoulos, Fuel Cells and Hydrogen Joint Undertaking. Uh, a question to Mr. Birol. Is carbon tax still a useful instrument? Why would Asia try and apply CCS uh, in their coal-fired power plants? Okay, thank you. It is 
13 minutes past midday, and I said I'd try and finish at quarter past. So I'm really, I'm really sorry. I can only take those because I'm going to have to close down. But I'm going to ask all panelists to respond to some of those issues. But perhaps, Fatih, you want to kick off with some of those kind of issues that are raised um, by, by colleagues in terms of, you know, carbon tax, obviously. Um, the point made by Imke about really is the outlook compatible with what we've heard from IPCC in particular and the other forecasts, for example. And if you might want to, I mean, and this is not to put you in a difficult position, I mean, because I know there's a lot of conversation about, you know, companies and uh, how clean they are and issues of corruption. What's your kind of personal view about making, you know, how do we work with companies that have a variety of backgrounds, whether they are, you know, allegedly doing X, Y, and Z, in terms of making sure, how do we move forward? And what's your view on that particular issue? So, uh, thank you very much, and thank you very much for all the uh, good questions. My colleagues here making excellent uh, contributions, uh, uh, of course, with uh, Mr. Vice President and uh, others. Now, a uh, couple of uh, uh, points. Uh, first, on the, uh, the first uh, serious question that our colleague uh, raised about the, uh, the interconnections and the variability of the renewables, this exactly uh, one of the key solutions uh, for me, the interconnections uh, within Europe, Europe and the other parts of the uh, world would help to uh, bring much more flexibility and much more resilience uh, to our electricity systems and a very good move for electricity security. And it is, I think, uh, I don't know which directions within, within Europe and first it should be within the Europe we need to, uh, I think, increase the interconnections. I think it is one of the, uh, Maros, if I'm not wrong, one of the points that you raise in the energy uh, uh, union, but also Europe and the others, it is, I completely agree uh, with that uh, issue. Interconnections, it is important. Your second question, the, you see a conflict between the, the, uh, the trends that we are uh, highlighting in the world energy outlook vis-a-vis -vis the uh, rather little impact on the uh, economy, so why don't we move? I want to highlight uh, one thing to all of you. Uh, with Europe, this is the issue, but uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, Europe is not the world. And I will remind this to my colleague, uh, Imke, in a few minutes, in a, a, a different context. Europe is important, and the leader in the fight against climate change, but the, uh, in the year uh, 2000, the European emissions, you know how much was it in the year 2000? No, it was about 20%, and today it fell down to 10%. The, the share of Europe emissions in the global emissions, uh, 10%, and tomorrow it is 5%. So therefore, uh, the, if, you, if you transpose the European experience to the world, I think you make a mistake. And it is very important, therefore, we should have empathy with the rest of the world, not only talking uh, from our comfortable uh, chairs here in Brussels or in Paris or, or elsewhere. Now, uh, the, uh, my colleague who asked about the, uh, the carbon tax, I think carbon tax is uh, the best solution to our climate change uh, problem, but best solution in terms of theory. But when you look at the real life today, if you could have a carbon tax, which should be, in my view, the best thing would be international carbon tax, a carbon price, 
the practicality of the having a carbon price in the emerging Asia today is very, very little, to be very frank with you. But we shouldn't be only saying that carbon tax or nothing, it's not black and white, we should find other ways to give incentives to the technologies, new clean technologies such as CCUS and, uh, and uh, others. Now, with the companies, you say, uh, I don't know who is uh, good, who is bad. The colleague who asked this question raised an issue about the um, um, uh, company, uh, about making a fossil fuel company, which made, I think, last week, a major investment in Algeria under solar power. Uh, there are some companies, there are some organizations uh, uh, on the green side and who are uh, used to be, who are considered to be, uh, we see news in the newspapers today and last week about their uh, leaders, how they uh, move. So I think it will be, it is very simple to take one example to extrapolate from there across the world and it is a, a dangerous tool uh, to use. One should be very, very careful uh, and take it seriously before making such accusations. It is easy to take the microphone and talk. My last point is the Imke's point. Uh, two things uh, she said, in the sustainable development scenario, not having only the climate change, but also having this uh, the access to electricity, reducing the air pollution, is it mixing the things together or watering down? And the second position is, the, the sustainable development scenario is not going to 1.5 degrees. I think the first one, the, if you read it carefully, sustainable development scenario uh, goes through 1.7 degrees with the open door to 1.5. That's number one. So the first thing is, it is what you said is uh, uh, wrong. But the second one is very dangerous. I mean, you, this, uh, this mistake you can, you can correct by reading the book carefully, t discussing with us. But second one is very dangerous. And this is, in my view, a very often made mistake. It's an ideological mistake. Not to have empathy with the developing world is not only helpful because emissions are coming there. You can easily criticize Mr. Shevkovich, you can convince him, you can do commission, but this will be an impact on the percentage point of the 10% we have. The emissions are coming somewhere else. If you don't look at their problems, which is air pollution, electricity access, you are just playing in your comfort zone. So this is, I don't have a, a, a lot of analogy to give, and Mr. Shevkovich mentioned my weak point, which is football. I can give you analogy of the football, what this type of behavior means. In football, in a football team, which is played by uh, 11 people, there are players, they play for the tribunes, for, for La Galerie. They make the tribunes to get their support, to get their applause and so on. Not for the team itself. Not for the goal for the team. The goal is to find a universal solution out to our climate change problem, and together with the developing countries. If you put on the climate change, but not to have the the, the poor countries on board today, A, you will not be able to reach your uh, 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 results in terms of climate change, and B, in my view, it is really wrong from a humanitarian perspective, it is wrong to think from only from the perspective of Paris or Brussels or New York or, or Geneva. One has to think very carefully uh, uh, okay. here. <clears throat> Finally, uh, the, uh, my, uh, the, uh, uh, the point I wanted to make uh, here is that Energy, 
because there's a lot of, uh, they, they think on energy. Energy is a very good thing. Energy makes our life better, more comfortable, much more modern, much more productive. We don't have a problem with energy. We have a problem with emissions. There are two different things. Without energy, what can you do? I mean, this is, this is the, let's put the things in a perspective. I, I uh, appeal everybody to be a bit responsible and again, not a play for the tribunes or spectators, but for the, for the team that we are all together here, all of us, to find a solution to our climate change problem. Fatih, thank you very much. I'm going to ask you to one, one final point, actually, very briefly. I'm going to ask all of this question of all of you, actually. We have the next, we, next year we have the new College of Commissioners and we have a new parliament. What would be your one ask of the new commission president? What would you say to him or her? To do to actually make a significant effect on an impact on this agenda. First of all, I hope it's a her. I should tell you that. It's I was going to say that one, too, so but I was conscious one. of people. So present. this is this is one <laughs> uh, because in the, when, when you ask about the modernization of the, one of the things that we have done, we have doubled the number of women in our management uh, team. So Precisely, this is, this is I hope it's a woman too. Yes, completely. But coming back to what I would suggest, if there is one thing, the uh, continue to be the leader in the fight against climate change and clean energy transition, but have the empathy and the leadership uh, with the uh, rest of the world where the emissions come from, where the most grave problems of energy, economy, and the climate change lies. This okay. is the, my, suggestion, my suggestion. Okay, great. So very briefly, your kind of 60 seconds on just concluding, what, what would you ask for next year? I think that to uh, succeed in this uh, very, uh, uh, very important uh, uh, challenge, is to build trust. And uh, so I think that when the Commission is working on a new package and each paragraph has to be assessed and to think, is it help to build trust or is it building mistrust? Well, very well, very well said. Imke. Yeah, trust I'll is come a to very you. important... Marash, I'll come to you last, if I may. Very important world. I think uh, I'd be happy for the new commission to take forward what this commission started. Uh, I think that will be very exciting to see how they do it, and I guess they have a lot to do. But I also think it's very important we integrate climate change into other topics, and the social question is definitely a very important one. How can we make everybody participating in a transition, even those who have, are less uh, skilled or less um, uh, equipped with, with the financial uh, resources? So I think that also makes, uh, will be decisive for how this, whether this uh, transition will be successful. Okay, thank you. I think that, uh, from my point of view, that we would like to have a pragmatic plan. So a plan that is deploying technology with an economic sense, that expands the optionality in the tools that we will have available for decarbonizing the economy, and buying time, because we need to have time using existing technology with the current that will minimize the impact of carbon footprint, and while waiting that new technology becoming more and more mature and more effective. So we need to select an optimal plan, not being the logical, being pragmatical, having a strong economical sense in our decisions. Otherwise, we will stop within the end of the journey. Okay, thank you. Last but not least, Vice President, what's, what's your response to some of the issues that have been raised, but also, what are you gonna, what's your gonna be your one big ask next year? My big ask to 
her, as it was concluded here, <laughs> would be exactly what uh, Imke has uh, said, that we started, uh, I think, uh, the most profound uh, transformation, not only of our energy systems in Europe, but uh, overall modernization of uh, the European uh, economy. And I think that uh, to keep that perspective, to keep uh, that uh, approach, uh, the investing in the technologies which help us to tackle climate change, which uh, make our um, uh, industry uh, more efficient, our air cleaner, and our uh, city smarter, is I think that the top priority for Europe, and it's top priority for the role that uh, Europe is uh, playing uh, on the global scale, because we are most advanced in tackling the climate change, and I think the overall success of how we do as a global community would very much depend on how we would lead, how we would succeed, what kind of example we would demonstrate, how we would be ready to share the technology with the people in developing world, and I totally agree with Fatih that we have to have this uh, empathy, be it uh, with the people who do not have access uh, to the electricity yet, or the people in the coal mining region across the Europe uh, who simply need to see what would be the next uh, economic uh, possibilities to develop in this region. We are doing that. I know how complicated it is, but that would be, that would be, my, that would be my ask. If you allow me the question of costs, um, um, which, was, which was presented a minute ago, I think that uh, um, maybe I was not precise in uh, my initial remark in that case, because what I was trying to underline is that what we would uh, put on the table, it's actually an enormous challenge for the European society. It's definitely not business as usual. I mean, to go to the, uh, to the climate neutral economy, to the net zero economy, I mean, in, uh, in um, uh, 40 years, it's an enormous challenge. But what I want to say is that we just shouldn't give up before we start it because it's possible, it's feasible, and it doesn't have uh, that cost implication as it was uh, mentioned before. But what it needs, it's very sound strategic thinking in what we invest, how we would avoid to put the money into the stranded assets, how we could uh, re uh, re uh, reinvent uh, the use of the current assets to uh, perform in a, in a clean way and, and how we could really do this uh, collectively as, as, as one Europe in one European economy. So the challenge would be enormous, but it's doable, but we need, of course, to pull uh, in one direction as all EU member states. And particularly the, 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 the first question. I'm coming here every year because this is very useful event to listen to the professionals for from International Energy Agency, and I'm coming to the event which is organized by the trusted partner like the Friends of Europe. So composition of the, of the panel, invitations sent out are the, really in the hands of uh, organizers, and uh, I know how useful this was uh, for us in the Commission and for the audience to uh, promote the discussion on this very important topic, and that was uh, the reason why I'm here this, uh, uh, this day as well. Of course, the corruption is unacceptable. It's cancer of the modern society, but we also have to trust judicial authorities, and I have full trust uh, Italian authorities uh, to do what is the right thing. Thank you.
Thanks a lot. Colleagues, thank you for staying. Uh, the room is holed up, but thank you for those of you who've been good to stay on. I've kind of hideously overrun by 28 minutes, nearly half an hour. Um, I hope you found this effective, uh, uh, thoughtful and stimulating. As we know, as you know, Friends of, Friends of Europe attempt to connect, debate and change issues uh, through these discussions. One thing, that I, the one message I will leave you with, one of the things that we're doing next year is that we're going to be presenting a set of policy choices for the new commission. Um, and and for the new parliament under the aegis of hashtag Europe Matters. It's our initiative that we set up eight months ago. We launched a report with an initial set of scenarios in October. And what we intend to do is set out some choices next year for the new commission. It's interesting, we commissioned a, 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 a citizen poll uh, across Europe. And we asked citizens, what, is a, what are the top three things that the new commission should focus on? And we gave them a whole list from education, health, migration, etc. The three things they said to us was tackle job, no, uh, jobs and skills, personal and uh, collective security. And the third one was tackle climate change. And actually it's quite interesting, we'll see how actually the new commission, but also how the parties across the board place this agenda at the top of their agenda in terms of their canvassing and engaging with citizens. Because clearly in Europe, this, ma this issue matters to people on the street across uh, Europe, regardless of age, stratification or gender. Colleagues, thank you very much. I hope you found this effective and sorry to have kept you for longer than intended, but let's thank our speakers in the usual way and see you at another Friends of Europe event.